Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, why it's so hard to find objective political news. I recently discovered a newsletter and a podcast called Tangle that has become my go-to for tracking the biggest political news of the day. They pick one topic and they share the facts from a range of sources and summarize the best arguments from across the political spectrum. It was actually an Instagram post from Tangle that really sold me on them. I was scrolling along one day, as we do on Instagram, and suddenly these words jump out at me. You may see coverage or opinions on here you don't like or don't agree with, and you may be tempted to unfollow. Please don't. We need you to help us fight polarization and partisanship by continuing to read all political and ideological sides of an argument, even if it angers you, even if you find yourself shaking your head at times. Okay, so that right there is a perfect encapsulation of what sticking with it means for us on the Top of Mind podcast. This act of choosing to stay open and curious rather than lash out or bail out when confronted with a challenging perspective. So I needed to know more, and I'm pleased to have with me now Isaac Saul. He is the founder of Tangle. Isaac, thanks so much for your time. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Julie. I'm happy to be here. So how did this come about? How did you end up with a podcast and a newsletter that has to beg people to not, un, you know, <laughs> to not unfollow or unsubscribe? Yeah, so I, I kind of talk about two different Genesis stories, I guess you could say. Um, the, the first one is just that I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a bellwether county and a bellwether state. So politically very divided. You know, when I was a kid, you'd see the CNN show up at my high school to interview people or the diner stories you see on the news, like that's happening in the town that I grew up in um, to get an understanding of just, you know, where people were going to cast their ballots and what people were thinking about the election. And so I just grew up around people who really had different feelings about politics. I had, you know, conservative and liberal friends, and I just basically saw them turn on each other over the course of, you know, 2006 to kind of 2020 time where I think politics just got a lot more divisive and it was basically, you know, became unapproachable in a lot of ways. And then, you know, between in between that period, I became a journalist. I went to school for nonfiction writing on a journalism track, and I got my first job ever at the Huffington Post, which, as most people know, is a, a left-leaning media outlet. And I like to tell people, you know, I didn't go work at the Huffington Post because I was just a bleeding heart liberal. I went there because I applied for 40 jobs, and they were the only people that gave me a job. And it's really hard to get a job when you're, a journalist, but I got to see how the sausage was made a bit at, um, you know, a news publication that needs to drive traffic in order to pay the bills at a news organization that had a particular ideological slant. 
And I didn't love what I saw, but it became clear to me pretty quickly that it was kind of representative of a lot of what was happening across the media space. What did and, you not like about what you saw? Just give me give me an example of what was going on there, but also at lots of publications across the nation. Sure. Space. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that like a lot of the incentives are, are kind of broken. Um, so, you know, for instance, if Huffington Post is reporting on a new bill that's been passed in Congress. There is a necessary incentive, or, or there, I guess there is an incentive for them that makes it necessary to center the conflict around the bill and maybe center the things that are really bad about it or the ways in which, you know, Republicans influenced the bill that maybe made it more extreme or outside the political desires of what your typical average Huffington Post reader would want. And that's what's going to make it into the headline. That's what's going to be the lead of the story. That's what's going to be the central focus. And the result is you get a lot more people interested in the story and clicking on it and reading it, which is good for business. But you also get people who are, I think, probably less informed about the bill in a holistic sense and also a lot more pissed off about what they're reading. And there's a lot of kind of emotional fire being added to the political landscape. And Again, this is certainly not unique to, to HuffPost. I think they, you know, had to have a specific slant and operate in a specific way in the space. But it was very obvious to me that, you know, the inf infor the informing readers part of it was a little bit secondary to the driving traffic and, you know, making revenue goals, which is a really important thing for a news organization that wants to stay alive. So yeah. I had a lot of ideas about how to address that. And Tangle was kind of the manifestation of a lot of the things that I saw in the media industry after about 10 years working as a political reporter and wanting to create something that I thought was really unique, that I felt like people wanted, and that I thought, you know, I could build a kind of sustainable business model around. Yeah. I appreciate um, that that you, that Tangle's approach is, is to acknowledge that there are more than two sides. <laughs> because I feel like it's, we've sort of been trained to believe that there are only two sides, and that you're either with the good guys or not. <laughs> and and so it sort of obscures all the possibility of the gray area and room for us to agree with one another, or at least to sort of see the rationality in each other's perspectives. Yeah, totally. I mean, the our format is definitely the kind of secret sauce to what we're doing. And for, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners haven't gotten a chance to read the newsletter yet, but the, the gist of it is basically that we introduce topics with, you know, the most neutral language we possibly can. And then we share perspectives from the left and the right on those topics. And then I give my own personal opinion, kind of call balls and strikes on, on stuff. And the left-right thing was actually one of the hardest decisions to make about the format, exactly because of what you're saying, which is that we don't believe there are just two sides on the issue. And on, on any issue. And so the way we generally try to divide the opinions we're presenting is we sort of work out from the center to the fringes. So what we try to do in each newsletter is, you know, under what the left is saying banner, 
we're going to have like really centrist kind of moderate left voices included in there, like somebody mm -hmm. like Michael Bloomberg maybe. And then we're also going to have more sort of fringe lefty, super progressive takes that are included in there. That way, you know, if you're a conservative reader, you see that you say, oh, there's like some people on the left who are writing things that I actually agree with or that I find really convincing, or maybe you don't. And it just sort of solidifies the opinion that you have already. But what we've found with our readers is that a lot of them have you know, the feedback they've given us is that they've had their minds kind of open to perspectives that they're not used to seeing or used to agreeing with because what happens right now in the current political news landscape is kind of the elevation of the idiots is sort of what I like to call it, which is basically, <laughs> you know, the, be the best tactic if you're a conservative pundit is to find the furthest left people you can find and then show them to your audience and make it seem as if they're representative of, you know, the, the progressive democratic movement as a whole. And lefties do the exact same thing. They find the most far right, scary conservatives they can find. And then they show them to their audience and they say, this is what the Republican party is. And the truth is that those groups aren't really representative. They exist for sure. And we, we show them in our newsletter, but there's a lot of people kind of closer to the center, more rational, more malleable in their views that, that don't get a lot of airtime. Yeah. There's something else that you've mentioned, Isaac Saul, in, uh, in your bio on your website that really resonated with me as well as a journalist where you were describing how, you know, you've written for other places besides you've reported for other, other outlets besides the Huffington Post, but each place you went and even as a, like a freelancer, you found that um, people would read you <laughs> only if they agreed, you know, depending on where you appeared. Like people, we were, you know, news consumers are using this shorthand, like Huffington Post, that's my people, or Fox News, that's my people, right? And they would only, only give you any attention if you appeared in their place that they felt was a safe place for them. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, the way I experienced it was that my second job ever was at a company called A Plus, which was a brand new media company that was started by Ashton Kutcher, the actor who is also, you know, a venture capitalist. And, you know, that's a whole other story. But basically, I left the Huffington Post and worked side by side with him and a really small team to build this media company. And I was one of their first full time hires. And I was just 23, 24, you know, just barely into my first real job. And we started something totally from scratch, a, a new brand, new name, new home for news organizations. We had a huge social reach because of Ash. And so we immediately got a really big audience and people would come read our stuff and they would look me up. They'd look up my name on the internet and they would see that I had bylines at the Huffington Post. And then they would immediately make presumptions about you know, what my politics were and what, what the political leanings of our news organization were. And that followed me for a while after I left mm -hmm. HuffPost where you know, I, I used to publish writing in the Independent Journal Review, which is a conservative magazine. And people would find my stuff there and sort of like, I'd see in the comments people saying, this guy used to work for the rag, Huffington Post, you know, whatever. And they wouldn't trust me because I had these bylines there. And it made me understand just how, how, how many different bubbles kind of existed in the media ecosystem and how people were really comfortable staying in those bubbles. And, you know, I think in some ways that problem is getting a little bit better now. I think we're, we're seeing the media ecosystem get fractured. There's a lot more independent creators like me who are coming up, who are building their own audiences and bringing in people of different political stripes, you know, under one roof. 
But generally speaking, I think it's still really true that, you know, if I meet somebody and I know nothing about them, I can ask them two or three questions about their news habits. You know, like, what do you watch on YouTube? What's your favorite news channel? What's like the first website you open up in the morning when you're reading the news? And I can guess with 99% accuracy who they voted for in the last presidential election. Mm -hmm. That should not happen. Like that, that should not be how it is, but that's just the current state of play with the, the media environment we live in, which I think is really worrisome. How can readers trust that you're not biased? I mean, you say you're not, right? You say that you're trying to, that you're using the most politically neutral language possible when you're describing these big issues in your newsletter each day. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, what, 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 how do you signal to people? How do you, how do you actually build that trust? What, what do you do so that people know they can trust you to be yeah. unbiased? Uh, my radical answer is that they can't and they shouldn't. I, I think everybody should read what we publish with a heavy dose of skepticism. I don't believe that I'm not biased. I think every individual reporter has their own biases. What we do is a reflection of that belief. You know, in every newsletter you read, you're going to get six summaries of different arguments from across the political spectrum about the issue. And then the seventh one you read is my personal perspective. So I'm one of seven views that you're going to encounter in the newsletter. And we structure it that way because I know that I come to every issue with my own biases based on my personal experiences, based on the people I've spoken to, based on you know where I grew up, all those things put together. I understand that I'm not right about every issue and I don't want readers to think I'm right about every issue. And so we sort of remedy that by just saying, here's a whole slew of perspectives and here's my personal one that comes in there. And the other part of doing that is, from my perspective, is it's an act of transparency. I mean, if, if you were reading the kind of views we were collecting without seeing my take in the newsletter edition, I think there's something about that that's a little dangerous where you don't actually know what the person who's putting together this you know, coalition of views actually thinks themselves. And by being totally honest and transparent about what, what my own views are, people can kind of take that into their calculation. And they do. I mean, I have readers every day, I get accused of being a closet Trumper and a you know, diehard, die-in-the-wool Democrat. I mean, I get, I have five of those emails unread in my inbox right now from today's newsletter of people saying that, you know, they they know that I'm actually a liberal, but it's okay. They still like me or they can tell <laughs> that I'm like a closet Republican and they don't want to read anymore or whatever. So, you know, everybody interprets it in their own way. And oftentimes it's really a reflection of their bias. But yeah, the truth is like, I have opinions about issues. I mean, depending on the issue, I have really strong opinions about it. So um, I, I what I often tell people is, no human being can come and report a story without introducing their own biases or without having their own biases about the story. But there are honest reporters and there are hacks. And that's just the reality of, of like the world we live in. And it's it can be hard to suss out the difference. But, you know, sometimes those biases manifest themselves in ways you might not expect. I mean, a classic example is, I think, you know, it's safe to bet that the New York Times, you'd look at all their employees who work there. The majority of them are probably regular Democratic voters who are left of center on a lot of issues. That includes a lot of their reporters, their journalists. But the New York Times is also publishing some of the most damning stories about Democrats and liberal, you know, politicians of any newspaper there is. 
because they really care about what those politicians do. I mean, famously, they broke the story about Hillary Clinton's emails, which effectively ruined her her career as a politician and helped her lose the 2016 election. And they did that while I think being staffed probably by a group of people who are mostly Democratic voters. But they they care in a different way about what Democratic politicians are doing because they're paying really close attention to them. They feel attached to their views. So it doesn't come out as simply as I think a lot of people think it does. And the real core question is whether people are being honest in their reporting or not, not, not what their political views are. Yeah. Well, it seems based then on the feedback that you're getting from from readers that people, and we certainly hear this on top of mind too, you know, we'll, we'll get criticized for being, for airing a conservative view or airing a, you know, a more social justice view that they oppose, you know, liberal, whatever it is. Um, and, and our goal, my, my goal is that everybody who's listening is going to get feel a little uncomfortable at some point in the episode. <laughs> like, I want you to hear something that makes you kind of, oh, cringe just a little bit and be like, I don't, I don't agree with that. But then <laughs> make the decision to not turn it off, <laughs> right? To keep listening, to not unfollow, like you guys said in your Instagram um, post. So, So let's talk about what that has looked like in your daily life? Because these opportunities to stay engaged, to not unfollow happen kind of all over the place, not just in our media consumption, but also in our jobs and in our interactions with other people, you know, and decisions about conversations we choose to have and, and you know, places that we choose to lean in, even though we're out of our comfort zone. Um, so I'd love to have you share a stick with it experience with us, Isaac Saul. What, what do we need to know to set this up? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, a big one that's happened to me recently was around an interview that that we did on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, mm. And I guess the background is basically that, you know, I am an American Jew. I, I lived in Israel. I lived in East Jerusalem for about six months. I have a lot of really mixed and conflicting feelings about what's happening there right now and and sort of all over the map. And this is definitely a difficult and emotional time, I think, for anybody who's been following this issue for a long time and even people who are new to it right now. And I wanted to host a debate between two people who had really strong disagreements about the issue. And I sort of fell into an interview between a guy named Hussein Abu Bakr Mansour, who is an Arab intellectual who grew up in Egypt and effectively grew up in what he called like a wannabe jihadist culture that was all about hating Israel and championing the Palestinian cause. And as he learned more about the issue, he became very pro-Israel, which Hmm. I thought is a fascinating narrative arc. And then uh, I, I got an opportunity to bring somebody else into the conversation who is a guy named Dan Cohen, who is an American Jew who grew up like most American Jews do, being told that Israel is their homeland and that you know they, they have a right to that land and a right to go be a citizen there. And then went and traveled to Israel and saw what was happening on the borders of Israel and did a documentary about what was happening in Gaza and became ardently pro-Palestine and very anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. And so I had this like really interesting match between these two people that were, you know, somebody who grew up in the Arab world really hating Israel who became pro-Israel and somebody who grew up in the American Jewish world feeling very strongly pro-Israel and then turned against it. And I thought that would be a really interesting debate to have. Um, And it turned out there was a lot of unevenness in the the kind of the matchup between them. I think 
um, Hussein was is a, a very much an academic and an intellectual and speaks that way. And I think Dan is very much an activist and in some cases I think bordered on being a propagandist. And, you know, it's hard to separate my own personal views from it, but I think in the interview crossed the line more often than Hussein did into saying things that were either misleading or kind of half truths. Mm-hmm. And the interview basically devolved uh, about halfway through and, you know, became kind of an exercise in trading barbs that I didn't think was helpful or adding much to the conversation. And after the fact, uh, Hussein told me he didn't think I should publish the interview because he didn't think it was useful for the public to see. And that put me in a really difficult position because from my perspective, not publishing the interview would sort of go against everything I stood for. It would, you know, be the opposite of transparency. It would be basically killing the interview because I didn't like how it went, which I think is a really dangerous journalistic standard. But I agreed with some of Hussein's criticisms. So so let me pause you for just a moment. So um, so this, I feel like this is the kind of the decision point. This is the the stick with it moment (laughs) where you do this interview. It doesn't go as you had hoped because you had these grand dreams. It got kind of, it got, it got messy. And then right after you, you know, you're getting criticism for how you handled it. In fact, Mr. Mansour like is talking on Twitter. He's saying some things about you on Twitter about how you're, you know, you're not smart enough to know just how badly things went or whatever, which is, you know, nobody loves to hear that, right? From somebody that you respect. Um, And so, so, so there was, I guess there was a moment here where you could have, on the one hand, you're like, you're saying your journalism side wanted, wanted to not silence this just because it wasn't as, it did turn out as you'd hoped. But there was also kind of just the personal choice too, like, is this, you know, this is this is only just going to open me up to more messiness. <laughs> like deciding to publish this is going to make things even more uncomfortable. And 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 did you have to also sort of do some soul searching about what you had missed and maybe where you had fallen short in the process as a journalist? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the things that was really hard for me again was that I agreed with a lot of Hussein's fundamental criticisms about kind of where things went off the rails, but I also understood that ideologically I was probably closer to him on this issue. And so I'm trying to make a decision while separating, you know, my sympathies for for what he's saying. And I think also, you know, as a reporter, I can probably count on one hand the number of times in my career somebody's like begged me not to publish or an interview or a recording that we've, you know, just had but between each other and so it gives you pause i mean it's something mm-hmm. that you're like whoa like and i said to him i said you know i'm i'm going to take this to my team i'm going to let them watch the interview i'll pass on your feedback i'll get some second opinions unfortunately before any of that came to fruition he sort of flamed me on twitter like you said for basically not being intelligent enough to understand why the publishing the interview was a bad idea um but yeah i mean it really it sort of stopped me in my tracks and it made me evaluate, you know, what I was really hoping to get out of it, what I wanted people to see and whether it felt valuable or not. And I I certainly had conflicting feelings about that. I mean, I wasn't totally, I wasn't certain about the decision, um, but I had the few fundamental principles that I felt really attached to that made me feel like I had to publish it basically. Yeah. 
Um, so you you decide to kind of lean into the discomfort of it and and try to um, make a learning opportunity of it from, and I'm sort of summarizing based on having watched the conversation. I watched this whole thing play out as you were, uh, one of the things that surprised me actually that impressed me as well was that like very quickly you were sort of very transparent. Hey, this happened. Here's what, you know, you know, here's what one of the people said. And then here's what one of the other people said about me. And we're, and this is how we grappled with this decision. And you just sort of laid it all out and actually acknowledged some of the mistakes that you made in terms of like, they're not as equally matched as I had hoped. And here are my regrets on how I handled it. And so here's what we've done to try to address that. Talk to me a little bit about the um, the decisions that you made that were uncomfortable for you in that process, like having to kind of you know, show some humility as you made the choice to put this out. Yeah, I think I think what I realized was that I, I got to a place where I realized not publishing it wasn't really an option for me, and that felt deceptive. It felt um, it just felt like a little icky in a way that I couldn't shake. And so, the choice that I made was: we're going to publish it. What's the what's what's the best way to do this? We could just put this interview up with no context, no information about what happened and sort of shield my audience and my viewers from the controversy that was taking place on Twitter and between these two people who both have pretty big platforms and lots of followers. Or we could sort of pull the veil back on, you know, how these things actually work behind the scenes and what it's like negotiating an interview like this and how it came to be. And um, and we decided to do the latter. And I think two things sort of drove that decision. One was just generally, um, you know, like the ethical standards that we're trying to follow with Tangle, which is a really big emphasis on transparency and kind of airing arguments next to each other and trusting our readers to sort of make decisions about what what feels to them like is a better, more honest telling of events. And then the second thing is just sort of leaning into the idea that it's okay for people to be upset about our coverage. It's okay for people to be upset about decisions we make. As long as we sort of come forward with humility, we we build trust with our audience. And ultimately, our North Star is trying to be one of the most trusted news organizations in the country f- among people from, you know, all the way far left to all the way far right and everybody in between. And the only way I felt like we could do that was by publishing the interview and just adding the appropriate context. And, you know, we put together an introduction, like you said, that I was proud of. And I think we framed it in a way that allowed people to understand everything that had happened leading up to it. And I was frankly pretty happy with the result. I mean, I think like the actual final outcome was we published an interview that got really testy. We showed to people how difficult talking about this issue is. And a lot of our audience came away feeling like Dan, who I think had been a little bit more misleading and used a little bit more hot rhetoric in his arguments, was basically being a little bit unfair in in the interview. I mean, um, a lot of the comments and the email responses we got were people who sort of recognized the imbalance. And even if they agreed with Dan, even if they were really pro-Palestine, which a lot of our readers are, were like, okay, yeah, some of this stuff he did was kind of unfair and a little bit ugly or a little bit nasty. Um, And I was happy about that. I mean, I because 
I felt like that was kind of the right read on what happened. And yeah. it was really rewarding to see that our audience could sort of separate that and come to that conclusion on their own with with pretty limited intrusion from me. I mean, basically what I did in the intro was just say what Dan and Hussein both said after the interview took place. And yeah. people kind of found that on their own, which I think is an important thing to realize is, you know, you can trust your audience. That yes, that's the thing that I that I really captured there as you were talking that you that you were able to present it in a way that you could trust people to you know, surely they were, they were yelling at the screen at some point during the watching. I'm sure everybody did. I know I did. But also being able to kind of take that under advisement and may, and be more informed. And hopefully, I mean, I, I would love to know what you um, what you think the payoff for that might be for your listeners and, and viewers. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the payoff for them is that they actually got to hear two people who really strongly disagree on the issue counter each other's points. I mean, I'm very well informed about this issue in particular. There are plenty of issues I'm not well informed about, but this just happens to be one that I've been caring about and reading about for a really long time. And I saw the way that Hussein would make a point and Dan would counter it. And there were moments that I thought were really informative where, where I saw very clearly this is one way to frame this event through this kind of pro-Israel lens. And this is one way to frame this event or this fact through, through a pro-Palestine lens. And they did that to each other. And I think... Uh, you know, for a lot of our readers, the payoff is that now when they go encounter those arguments out in the wild, they'll hear the retort from Hussein, they'll hear the retort from Dan, and they'll have a kind of more holistic total view of the issue and they can really judge, you know, what resonates with them more based on that. And I think that makes people more informed. I think it makes people more level-headed. I think if you're only getting one side of those kinds of arguments, that's really how you get radicalized on issues, which I think is dangerous. And, you know, there's a reason issues in our country are, are contentious usually. You know, pick any really contentious issue that's out there. And typically it's because there's resonant arguments on, on both sides of the issue or on multiple sides of an issue. And if you don't know all those resonant arguments, then it, it's really easy to kind of, you know, jump into very extreme views and I think very ignorant views often. I mean, anybody who follows the Israel-Palestine issue, you know, it, if you leave feeling anything other than, wow, there's a ton of nuance and complexity and difficulty around this issue, then I think you're, you're not properly informed about it. I think it's just a totally um, inevitably difficult and complex thing to, to navigate. And I hope that a lot of readers got that out and a lot of viewers got that out of watching the interview. Hmm. Isaac, thank you for sharing that story with us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to. Where can people find Tangle? They can find Tangle at readtangle.com, R-E-A-D, Tangle. That's T-A-N-G-L-E.com. And yeah, our newsletter is totally free to try. You can read it Monday through Thursday for free. And if you you know support our work, you can become a, a member, a paying subscriber. And we also have a podcast under the same name and a YouTube channel as well. So yeah, I encourage anybody who's interested in getting a more holistic view at the news and getting out of their bubbles to, to check us out. That was Isaac Saul, who's the founder and editor of Tangle. 
I would love to hear about a stick with it experience you've had. Maybe it's even been while listening to a Top of Mind episode where you felt challenged by a perspective you were hearing, maybe even wanted to turn off the podcast, but you chose to keep listening, to stay open and curious. What was the result? Our Top of Mind team of producers recently did a whole episode reflecting on stick with it moments we've had while creating this podcast. It's kind of a fun behind the scenes look at how we as humans with our own biases and perspectives are working right along with you to get outside of our bubbles. So send your thoughts to us by email. Topofmind at byu.edu is our address. Or you can find us on social media where we are at Top of Mind Pod. And we love hearing your thoughts about the podcast in general. A listener called HMNA PAX left us this review on Apple Podcasts recently. This podcast is a place where I can get good information and listen to new perspectives. Julie and her staff do an excellent job at researching topics and informing listeners without a political agenda. It's really great to hear. Thank you so much, HMNA PAX. Now, would you take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app? That's actually one of the ways the algorithms on these apps figure out which podcasts to recommend to people. And of course, we'd love to have more people discover us. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Hey, Top of Mind listeners. I have another podcast I want to recommend to you. It's from the BYU radio family of podcasts, and it's called The Appleseed. It's a show filled with stories for you and your family. Each episode features master storytellers sharing all kinds of stories, folk tales, fairy tales, personal and family tales. So it's perfect for road trips, for bedtime, or really anytime you're looking for something that the whole family can enjoy together. And the stories you'll hear will likely get your family sharing their own stories with each other, which is really the best part. It's the payoff. So listen to The Appleseed wherever you get your podcasts.